Welcome back to the When We Were Young podcast, the show that is currently recording in an alternate timeline where people aren't allowed to leave their homes, everyone is too scared to touch anything, and where Biff Tannen is basically president of the United States. <laughs> I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to somehow be best friends with a scientist several decades older than me. I'm Chris, your podcast host whose car is most likely to explode into flames going 88 miles per hour in the parking lot of a JCPenney. And I'm Seth, the host most likely to know that Great Scott implies the existence of a mild and medium Scott, and I will remain haunted by the thought of that forever. <laughs> <laughs> so after celebrating our three-year anniversary in September 2019, we decided to take a little time off. And here we are, back with a fresh new episode for you in April 2020. So what's new? <laughs> well... <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> I don't know. We could maybe start with the whole pandemic thing. Oh, should we start there? Real out of the box thought, I know. That's not a good place to start, you guys. <laughs> it's a terrible place to start. <laughs> well, it's where we're going to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've decided to resume podcasting right in the middle of a virus sweeping the world. But that wasn't going to stop us from sharing our very important feelings on pop culture from our childhoods. So we are currently podcasting in our separate homes. So this should be a fun new challenge. If we could afford underground bunkers, we would be in those as well. We all live in underground bunkers. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's all we can afford. <laughs> <laughs> no windows. <laughs> so we decided to come back with one of the biggest film franchises from our childhoods or from film history, honestly, Back to the Future. It's also fitting because we wish we could go back in time and buy more toilet paper and Lysol. Back in time. <laughs> <laughs> so for this episode, we're going to talk about Back to the Future, the first one. And we're actually going to record a second episode, a part two for Back to the Future, part two and part three. So look forward to that. So dear fans, we missed you so much. Our episode schedule and release schedule, you know, we're changing up a few things. So it might be a little different than what you're used to. But change is good, unless it's the world shutting down because of a virus. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, while we're all at home, I think it actually is a really good time, um, both for us to be recording things, just because we get to chat with our friends about movies, even if we're used to doing that in person. And um, this is our first episode that we've ever recorded not in the same room together. But also because people are at home and have time to be watching the things that we're watching and listening to podcasts. So hopefully this is a nice little escape for us and for our listeners as well. So this episode, we're going to be talking about Back to the Future, part one. Uh, but before we dive into the DeLorean and discuss Back to the Future, I'd love to know what day or time from your past would you love to go back and visit, either to make better or just to enjoy again? So I'll start. Um, I would love to go back in time and act in my high school's plays again, <laughs> especially the musicals. I would like you to go back to your high school and act in their plays now. Oh, believe me. She's tried. Uh, She's tried. <laughs> I just started following the Ontour company, my high school theater company on Instagram. Becky took me back to her high school to relive that <laughs> at one point. So I have experience with this. Yes, you that did. That sounds like kidnapping across state lines. <laughs> it was. Okay. But like, that was probably my favorite time of my life as far as growing up. I loved acting in those plays and rehearsing them and doing tech nights. And I, I just, I loved the whole thing and I don't have any of that in my life anymore. And that's, I really miss that when I think of growing up because I didn't have a great childhood. Like it was full of bullying and like I got friends, I got really good friends later, um, like after puberty, <laughs> <laughs> I think starting like ninth grade, like there's still some, you know, not great stuff in high school, but when I look back on it, I'm like really nostalgic for it. Otherwise, I would love to go back to being a toddler. I remember being really happy when I was a toddler. <laughs> I don't. Th I don't know if there's anything I would fix. I, I, would you? Would I beat up my bullies? I don't. I don't know if that's 
You I could be know. an adult Becky going back and beating up children <laughs> who are yeah. picking on baby <laughs> Becky. <laughs> Again, Becky, you can beat up children now. It is entirely within the realm of possibility for well, you. Well, if I have a time machine and go back and kick the shit out of my 12-year-old boys, <laughs> then I just hop back at the time machine. Fair. <laughs> yeah. You can't see me, but I'm shrugging right now. Like, mm, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Becky, much like you, I mean, for me, it's like bittersweet to say it, but I would like to go back to like the time, I think it was in the middle of high school, like around sophomore, junior year. I was very depressed at the time, but also some amazing things happened that have like shaped the course of my life since then. Like it was when I first started to learn to play guitar and start to learn to play like all of the music that I was into at the time. It was when I kind of solidified all my friendships with the people I was friends with in high school who really helped carry me through that and made everything so much better for me. And I would also, you know, beat up the bullies or enact very complicated musical performance based (laughs) comebacks (laughs) against them at dances or something like that. And it was also the time when I got uh, my dog, Phoebe. And I remember how wonderful that was and like how much it helped me through a very like stressed and anxious and depressed time. And I miss having that in my life right now. Uh, I definitely miss the dogs of my friends like Becky, who I live vicariously through. We can FaceTime with Charlie. I would love to FaceTime with Charlie. (laughs) But yeah, if I could go back in time, I would do that. And that's, of course, aside from like the pat, like I'd go back in time and kill Hitler answer. Well, that didn't happen during your life. And that was the question. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's fair enough. (laughs) I would not cheat. I would not go against the rules of the game. Well, I would go back and stop Nancy Kerrigan from getting hit in the knee. Uh, no, I was just trying to think of a random event that did happen in my lifetime that I could stop, but I, I don't think I would spend my time travel powers to do that. Because then we wouldn't have the great movie, I, Tanya. And that's what really matters. I think you guys are nuts because I would never go back to high school <laughs> under any circumstances. There are moments, you know, that were like enjoyable, but I feel like they would just be awkward. And <laughs> I thought about like going back to see Jurassic Park again for the first time, but like it would kind of be creepy if I was just watching my <laughs> younger self do it. <laughs> well, because you're still you and you've seen Jurassic Park a million times. So it's not like it's you'd re-experience it for the first time. Right, right. And I think it depends on your previous self's reaction to encountering your current self. You know, like, is it an Elizabeth Shue situation or is it a Biff Tannen situation? (laughs) (laughs) I think I would go back to my freshman year in college, maybe, when I met Becky and other film fans. I don't know what I would do. (laughs) Really? Because I was already there. So you're saying you would go back to just before you met me? (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. I would stop that from happening, first of all. Yeah, you'd fix all of that deal. (laughs) You're my version of killing Hitler, is not meeting Seth. I think I would just like go and like hang out with my old self and Becky and like five other film people where they're all talking about Magnolia and I'd be like, me too. And one day I'll have a podcast about it. And they'll be like, what is that? You're crazy. Why is this old man hanging around us? And then I would give myself a sports betting book and get rich. And then I'd be the president. I mean, you definitely gamed this out, Chris. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a map. All right, well, let's talk about the Back to the Future trilogy, shall we? Back to the Futures, parts one, two, and three. (laughs) Backs to the Future, please, (laughs) Becky. (laughs) It's like attorneys general. (laughs) They were directed by Robert Zemeckis. All three are written by Bob Gale, with Zemeckis also getting a writing credit on the first film. The films are executive produced by Steven Spielberg and his Amblin production company. They star Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly, Christopher Lloyd as Dr. Emmett Brown, or just Doc, Leah Thompson as Marty's mother, Lorraine, Thomas F. Wilson as Biff Tannen, and the films also star Crispin Glover as Marty's dad, George, in the first film, not the second or third, Mary Steenburgen as Clara in the third, and Elizabeth Shue as Marty's girlfriend, Jennifer, in parts two and three. The first Jennifer was actually Claudia Wells. She backed out of the sequels when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. That's sad. Just sucks that she's only in one out of three of these movies. The film franchise has earned over 970 million worldwide. 
It's earned five Oscar nominations with one win for Best Sound Editing for the first film. The movies have inspired a Saturday morning cartoon, a theme park ride at Universal Studios, video games, comic books, novelizations, and as of 2020, a musical that premiered in London's West End. So I'd love to know, what's your history with Back to the Future? I'll start with this. Back to the Future was one of the franchises that was kind of present throughout my entire childhood. It was definitely one where we had each installment of the trilogy on VHS tapes. But all I ever remembered from it were kind of scenes and moments and images from each of the three movies. And I never really knew which moment went for which, you know, like the hoverboard to me was kind of the thing I remembered the most from the whole franchise, uh, along with the shoes that tied themselves. <laughs> um, Cause as oh, a kid, I was like, Ooh. shoes. yeah, as, as a kid, I was like, this would really make life easier for me in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> but I did not consider myself like a huge fan of them growing up. They weren't iconic for me as, like as a kid, like Star Wars was or something like that. And I never saw them in theaters. Wow. Actually, not wow. I don't even know if I did. <laughs> <laughs> Is this another round of wow, not wow? <laughs> wow revoked. <laughs> Yeah, these were not um, a huge part of my childhood either. Like the Star Wars movies, actually, I only saw them at a friend's house. It was my friend Tom, and uh, his mom would like watch us often. So we would be over there, and these movies would be on. But I really didn't have that much of a sense of like which one was which, or like actually choosing to watch them. Like I would come over, and they were already like midway through the movie or whatever. So I'm pretty sure that we saw the third one a lot. <laughs> I don't remember really <laughs> seeing the second one very much. Maybe I know I've seen it, but it was I think like once at most, and then maybe the first one a couple of times. But these were never movies that I owned, did not see any of them in the theaters. I think I know it best from like the ride at Universal Studios, which sticks in my mind, I feel like a little bit more than the films themselves. Well, I am the opposite of both of you. <laughs> it's funny that you said that it's not like that you compared them to Star Wars, because actually I think these movies were my Star Wars because I wasn't into Star Wars growing up, but I was wow. really into these movies. I loved them. I can't recall the first time I saw them, and I don't even think I did see them in theaters. I don't remember when I began watching them, but they, they kind of always just felt like they were there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I owned them on VHS. I knew them back to front. I loved them. I watched <laughs> them all the time. They felt like my movies, and I just, I loved them. I always wanted a hoverboard more than anything. And those shoes were also very cool. And I loved the ride at Universal Studios. I was actually kind of sad they were getting rid of it, even though they were replacing it with a Simpsons ride. But I I, I wanted them both to exist. <laughs> Wait, so were we talking Universal Studios Florida or California or what? Both. Both. I think it was, okay. Yeah, it was that both. Okay. I'm from Louisiana, as I've said before on the podcast, and I would go with my family to Disney World in Florida, but we never went to Universal Studios Park there. Did y'all both go to that ride when you were kids? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I went to both because I was in both California and Florida Disney World, Disneyland. Look at you, Mr. Traveler. I know I went to Universal Studios Florida because there is a videotape somewhere. Of, <laughs> like that was when my family got their like first like camcorder. So there's a lot oh, of Oh, and we'll be sharing that, that online. That will <laughs> die with me. Nope. We're going to have to digitize <laughs> that for the sake of future generations. I am wearing a goofy hat. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I loved these movies. It's funny that I can't remember anything specific about watching them or the first time or anything, but they were just always there. They were always part of my life. So let's talk about how Back to the Future came to be. Robert Zemeckis was born May 1952 in Chicago. He was obsessed with television and his family's 8mm home movie camera. He saw the film Bonnie and Clyde and decided he wanted to go to film school. He got into USC film school, but was rejected from the university itself because of his average grades. He gave uh, an impassioned plea to the school officials and promised to go to summer school and improve his studies, and he convinced them to let him into the school. It's funny, there is an entire building named after him now, so that worked out for him. <laughs> It was at USC where he met Bob Gale, who he would collaborate on many projects, including Back to the Future. Zemeckis has said that he gravitated towards Gale because all the other students were into French New Wave at the time, and he and Gale liked Hollywood movies like James Bond and Disney movies. 
Zemeckis won a Student Academy Award for his film A Field of Honor and got the attention of none other than Steven Spielberg, who became his mentor and executive producer for the first two films he made, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars. Zemeckis and Gale also wrote Spielberg's film 1941. All of those movies bombed and bombed hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 1941 is a real black mark in the Spielberg game. It's interesting to watch. I don't think it's good, but I think there are worse Spielberg movies, but it's definitely forgettable. Zemeckis and Gale were not doing too hot at this point, but Michael Douglas hired Zemeckis to direct Romancing the Stone, which ended up being a big hit, and it saved Zemeckis' career. As far as the story for Back to the Future, Bob Gale came up with the initial idea when he returned to his childhood home and found his father's high school yearbook. He wondered if he would have been friends with his father if they'd gone to high school together. He went back to Los Angeles and told his idea to Zemeckis, and they started to write the screenplay. They set the story in 1955 because if an 18-year-old in 1985 were to travel back in time to hang out with his parents, it would logically be in the 50s. It also worked out because the era marked the rise in teenagers, the birth of rock and roll, suburbia. It all fit nicely with the story they were trying to tell. As for the design of the time machine, it was originally going to be a refrigerator. (laughs) However, Zemeckis was concerned that children would accidentally lock themselves in refrigerators. Oh my God. A rash of freezing deaths across the country. If it was a refrigerator, I would have gotten it in my refrigerator. So he was right. (laughs) This is sad. (laughs) I wasn't going to say it. Thank you, Chris. He also thought the time machine, it would work best if it were mobile and could be easily moved. So they decided with a car and the DeLorean was chosen because its design made the joke about the family of farmers mistaking it for a flying saucer in the first movie. It made that joke work. Yeah, I had forgotten that the DeLorean was actually a thing aside from this movie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's which is crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is bringing up a thing that I forgot to mention in my Back to the Future story. My next door neighbor across the street had a DeLorean in the family garage and they basically never took it out except like to wash it occasionally. <laughs> so like one of my other biggest touchstones thinking about it, like for that entire series was the DeLorean itself. Yeah, I was so confused when they start talking about the DeLorean, like, as if it's already a thing in the movie. I'm like, wait, didn't you invent that for this movie? But no, it was was a real car that people could buy. uh, Yeah, but it was also a bot, like, it, it was a failure of a car. Right, that's the thing. It That itself was a huge failure and kind of iconic as a failure. And the inventor of it named DeLorean was like a Coke dealer mogul or something like that. His entire career flamed up in disgrace as well. Yep, it's a, it's a very interesting story, actually. But it's funny that I feel like this movie used it as a joke, but then made it cool. It, it's really crazy because it feels like it was made for this movie because it's such a distinct but kind of weird and both like sleek and futuristic but also kind of dorky thing right. that it just sure. like, it feels like it could only be like a movie car. Yeah, for sure. Other things in the process of writing the, the screenplay, Doc originally owned a pet chimpanzee. What? Oh. <laughs> and then they went with a dog instead. <laughs> Good change. Yeah. Good change. (laughs) Zemeckis and Gail delivered the script to Columbia, who put it in turnaround. Says Gail, they thought it was a really nice, cute, warm film, but not sexual enough. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the fuck sure. (laughs) Um, So during the 1980s, popular teen comedies were like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Porky's, our favorite movie, Mm. Porky's. Um, They were risque and they were aimed at adults and Back to the Future script. Um, it was not seen as adult enough back then. Gail and Zemeckis pitched the movie to Disney, but they felt the story of a mother falling in love with her son was not appropriate. <laughs> so it lives in this weird middle ground. Yeah. So they ended up at Universal under Spielberg's Amblin Company. Universal executive producer Sidney Scheinberg had some suggestions, changing the character from Professor Brown to Doc Brown. He also wanted the title change to Spaceman from Pluto. (laughs) What? His reasoning was that there were no successful films ever to have future in their title. (laughs) Are there successful films that have either Spaceman or Pluto? Was it the word in or from? (laughs) What he's referencing is the moment where Marty is wearing yellow hazmat suit and he fakes being a Spaceman from Pluto to his... Uh, father in the past. Do you remember that scene? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It is one. Right. It is one scene of the movie that is otherwise yes. irrelevant yep. and would be a bad title. 
Okay. So Zemeckis did not like this. He asked Spielberg for help to keep his original <laughs> title. Spielberg dictated a memo to Scheinberg, convincing him that they thought his title was a joke and embarrassed him into dropping the idea. <laughs> I would really like to go to Spielberg every time I had a problem, too. I feel like Spielberg is the type that gets things done. Daddy Spielberg. <laughs> Cast in the role of Marty McFly was none other than Eric Stoltz. <laughs> A few weeks into filming, Zemeckis decided Eric Stoltz was not comedic enough and decided to recast him, even though they had already filmed a bunch of scenes and already spent $3 million. Oh. So there's actually footage you can see on YouTube or like on the DVDs of Eric Stoltz in the scenes. Release the Stoltz cut. <laughs> so he was recast with Michael J. Fox, who was the first choice for the role anyway. The original Jennifer was Melora Hardin, Jan on The Office, if you're familiar with The Office. <laughs> But when Marty was recast, she was recast too, since she was way too tall for Michael J. Fox. Poor Melora Hardin. So Michael J. Fox's schedule during weekdays was filming Family Ties during the day. Then he would film Back to the Future from 6.30 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. He slept five hours a night and would do it all over again the next day. On Fridays, he shot from 10 to 7 a.m. and then moved on to exterior scenes because he was only available during daytime hours. It, like, it was just like a clusterfuck for him. But he wanted to be in TV and movies. And this is the way to do it. So I think it turned out pretty good for him. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously his iconic performance. I think Family Ties too. But if you say Michael J. Fox, they're probably not going to mention anything before Back to the Future. So the first choice for Doc Brown was John Lithgow. And I got to say, Lithgow. that's a pretty good... That's pretty good casting, actually. That that I could really see. I would actually love to watch the Lithgow cut. Yeah, yeah. that would that would totally work. He has the zaniness down perfectly as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. I actually think that would be really good casting. He was unavailable, so it went to Christopher Lloyd. One of the taglines for the film was, are you telling me my mother's got the hots for me? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely put that on Front Street. You want that as your tagline. Zemeckis and Gail did not like that tagline. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? Back to the Future was released July 3rd, 1985. The budget was $19 million. The box office was $389 million. It was the highest grossing movie of 1985. It was right ahead of Rambo First Blood Part 2 and Beverly Hills Cop. The plot of Back to the Future is uh, teenager Marty McFly unexpectedly travels 30 years into the past to 1955 in a time machine built by his best friend, scientist Doc Brown. <laughs> he finds Doc Brown in the past and together they have to find a way to send Marty back to the future. But before they can do so, he runs into his parents and throws a wrench into their romance when his mom falls in love with him instead. Uh, the reviews for Back to the Future are pretty great overall. It has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Adam Smith from Empire Magazine wrote back in 1985, to put it bluntly, if you don't like Back to the Future, it's difficult to believe that you like films at all. Ebert said the film had charm, brains, and a lot of laughter, and commended Zemeckis, who shows not only a fine comic touch, but also some of the lighthearted humanism of a Frank Capra. So that is Back to the Future. So what did you guys think of going back to Back to the Future? So I was really interested in going back to Back to the Future uh, because it had been so long since I'd seen any of these movies. I think it's possible that I saw the first one back in film school. Beyond that, I really had not revisited these. And like I said, I wasn't super into them, so hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about them. 
But Zemeckis is a very big deal, as we said, at USC. So the reputation of these movies always loomed large, even if the movies themselves didn't for me. And I knew the movies most by like the third film and The Ride, which are very broad and comedic. So I was curious, especially about the first movie, to see if it had anything to offer more than kind of the silliness of the series. And I found myself really torn because on one hand, I think it really works like clockwork. The screenplay is really tight and clever. And on the other hand, I felt like there was a lot of room for the Eric Stoltz, John Lithgow movie (laughs) that (laughs) was initially kind of planned that was a little bit more probably of a serious sci-fi drama, still with a lot of comedic elements, but I can see how you could take this script and play it a little bit more down to earth. And I don't know, I think that that, would have been more satisfying for me, even though it's pretty funny. I find that there's kind of a lag for me between the comedy and the premise that mostly works, but I also wanted a little bit more out of it. Seth? I don't like Robert Zemeckis as a filmmaker. I don't think he's a good storyteller. I think Zemeckis and the writer Bob Gale do, like Chris says, a very good job of laying out the plot and mechanics of this story. But I don't feel like at any level they wrote characters to inhabit this story and to bring it to life. I find most of Zemeckis' movies, with some exceptions, to be kind of, at their worst, like family guy level writing. (laughs) Just cartoonish in every way, but being literally animated. And I find this movie in particular to be, quote unquote, fun. I don't find it to be funny. (laughs) There was like not one genuinely clever moment that like really caught me off guard and like really made me laugh. And I mean, not to spoil too much, but that doesn't happen for me much throughout this whole franchise. I think Christopher Lloyd is the closest thing to like a genuinely entertaining character and his exploits are the most fun. But he's not the main character, especially not of the first movie. And Michael J. Fox's character, I just kind of find to be a blank slate in search of plot devices to happen. I mean, sure, you can say it's an action-adventure movie, so someone like that is kind of the window for a young teenage guy to kind of, you know, project onto and follow through. And that's fine. And again, on its mechanics, it's fun. It's got a lot of really fun set pieces that are very clever. But I don't really feel like I'm taken on a journey with characters who are trying to find something or, you know, trying to discover something about themselves. Yeah, so I, I was interested, like Chris was, to revisit these or to really visit them as individual movies for the first time. But I was pretty underwhelmed by this first one. Seth, the characters aren't supposed to discover themselves. They're trying to fuck their mom. Well, when I said discover, that's exactly what I meant, obviously. My heart hurts. <laughs> Talk about this movie this way. Oh, I knew I wouldn't like this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Becky quits. I'm just glad y'all are not here so I can't see your heartbreak, Becky. I don't know if I could take it. I wish I was there to see your heartbreak. (gasps) Hashtag Revenge for Buffy. (laughs) I'll take a picture of me and send it to you so you can see how sad I am. We're going to post the video of Chris at the Back to the Future ride and Becky crying. This movie's perfect. (laughs) I love this movie. This movie is perfect. I think this is a perfectly written movie and just perfectly made. I honestly do. I love it so much still. I just think it's so well done in every way. (laughs) Uh, Becky, are you Huey Lewis? Because that's news to me. I don't, I mean, maybe it's my nostalgia, but like I still put it on and I'm just happy. Like it it feels like an action adventure sci-fi version of like Raiders of the Lost Ark where it's just fun. The way that it does fun is so excellently made. It's never boring. The performances are great. It's not too deep. It's silly. I'm sure at the time it was very, very new. I don't think there was anything quite like this. It feels so well made. It's just so satisfying. It just still, I still love watching it. (laughs) I've said this before about many Zemeckis movies, but Back to the Future especially really feels like a theme park ride itself. Like it feels like a story that was created behind a theme park ride. 
Yeah, but I don't think that has to be bad. If it's well done and I'm impressed by it, like I, you know, then why is that bad? I think that's what Zemeckis does best. And if you're not into that, then I can see why you don't like Zemeckis. But generally, I, out of the three of us, I think I'm definitely the biggest Zemeckis fan here. You know, some movies of his I'm like, eh on, but for the most part, I really, really love his filmography. Well, and I I should say, I don't mean to say that it's crap, you know, I'm just, it's, it's just that Back to the Future is almost universally considered one of the best movies of all time. And especially watching it now, I'm like, I don't understand why that's the case other than 80s nostalgia to a large degree. I think that it is, besides the nostalgia, I still think it is such a tightly written screenplay that the entire series feels like a really tightly tightly written comedic sketch and it keeps heightening and there's callbacks and there's nothing that isn't used somewhere. It's just so, they took out everything that doesn't need to be there, but it's also entertaining. I think the writing is... I don't know. I just found the writing very elementary in the sense that basically any plot question raised in one scene gets either immediately answered or answered immediately in the next scene. There are no problems that these characters face in any of these movies that don't get very quickly resolved. So like, to me, it was kind of a flat experience watching especially all three of these movies because all of the dilemmas that they really face are based in the plot. Again, they're not based in the characters and problems with the characters and their flaws. Again, they're just kind of so immediately and relatively easily solved that even the stakes of like literally the fabric of space and time don't ever really seem to carry much weight for me. Yeah, I mean, I want to agree with both of you because I think you're both really right about something. (laughs) No, pick one. (laughs) Because like this screenplay, I think, shows such a mastery of a certain kind of writing and such a dearth of another kind of writing that it's really hard. I mean, I can definitely see what Becky is saying about how tight the script is in terms of everything that's in there feels like it is set up and pays off. And there's a lot of cleverness in the script. And I'd like to get into, you know, some of the particular things that I liked. But from the very beginning, it just shows this sort of lack of character because we were, you know, kind of hinting at the what the fuck relationship between Doc (laughs) and Marty, which I was shocked watching it this time that that it's not set up. It's just taken as such a given. Like, you know, it's Doc and Marty, like from the movies and from Mm -hmm. the ride that like, I was sure that it was set up somewhere that (laughs) at some point someone said a line like, hey, remember, you know, when I met you at the science fair or whatever? Right. (laughs) It's such a weird weird opening. I mean, not only that they're friends, but like he goes to Doc's house and he's like in his house. Like this isn't just like a casual relationship. Like he feels comfortable like wandering into his house. He's not there. And they're friends with benefits. (laughs) I mean, the benefit being uh, giant speakers that Marty likes playing his uh, rock and roll on. Yeah, and I was I was just a little disappointed that it starts in this kind of sense. It, like, it feels like a TV, an episode of a TV show where we already saw the last episode and have established this relationship. So I think that that's kind of emblematic of the way that this series doesn't really think very much about its characters. I have this a similar problem with Marty alone, too, because he's just like, who is Marty? He's like kind of a slacker. He's dating a very like pretty girl but he doesn't seem to have any other friends like he like he just he doesn't seem to exist <laughs> who are they like we don't know, know. like it's just he, he, there's just no character to him like i guess he kind of says that he wants to be like doing music like that's the one kind of character beat he gets as he says that he wants to audition for i think the school dance but he's kind the battle of, of the bands and, but like yeah it just like it didn't really establish enough of a character like it, it, he's just such an everyman that i wish for someone who's going to be in three movies that there was a little bit more to grab onto there i really like michael j fox and he brings enough character to this type of of role. That's the thing. I feel like this franchise uses him as a kind of Robin Williams for want of writing a deeper character whose stakes are more clear through the plot of the movie. It kind of coasts on his charisma. Yeah, and I think he's very charismatic. For me, it works how charismatic he is that I don't need more than what the movie gives me. 
I'm not saying that I wouldn't have accepted more if there was more, you know, detail about Marty and who he is. He does feel like an everyman. And for me, it's more about you imagining that yourself is that you are Marty and you're thinking, you know, I don't have anything in common with my parents and I don't like my parents. And all of a sudden, the whole point of the movie is you realize that you do have a connection to your parents, actually. And you have more in common than you think. It's just very relatable that people have these thoughts about their parents and they have these realizations and like Bob Gale going through his father's yearbook and thinking, oh, like me and my dad are not that different. Like he was in high school once. I guess it doesn't bother me that Marty is kind of a blank slate. Well, I do think they got lucky with Michael J. Fox and that he is charismatic enough. You aren't bored during this movie. You are along with him. And he does really great at certain comedic reactions, I think, and kind of selling the like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, like totally agree. The story. Yeah. And I can see why maybe Eric Stoltz, when they were filming with him, it was just like it felt flat because there were just there isn't a character unless <laughs> it's played by Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. Chris, what were some of the details of the script that you thought were really good that you were mentioning earlier? Yeah, I really liked the way that things are set up. It takes more than 30 minutes before they actually go back to 1955. And I really liked the amount of time that they were willing to take to set everything up, which I feel like wouldn't happen in a movie now where they like are always like getting to everything like way too soon without any development. Things like Save the Clock Tower and how we, along with Marty, kind of learn these details that are going to become crucial later. And the scene with the parents, like having dinner and just setting up them as characters and the, the way that they met. Because you can easily see those being cut out and just like Marty later being like, oh, I know how my parents met, but I like being able to see even this like hint of nostalgia that his parents have that kind of sets up them and their characters. My favorite part of this movie is Leah Thompson and especially Crispin Glover. I think they're the MVPs of this movie. Mom, is that you? You're there now. Just relax. I've been asleep for almost nine hours now. Had a horrible nightmare. Dreamed that I went back in time. It was terrible. Well, safe and sound now, back in good old 1955. 1955? You're my... You're my... My name is Lorraine. Lorraine Bates? Yeah. But you're, uh, you're so, uh, you're so thin. Just relax, Calvin. You've got a big bruise on your head. Ah. Where are my pants? Over there. On my hope chest. I've never seen purple underwear before, Calvin. Why, why do you keep calling me Calvin? Well, that is your name, isn't it? Calvin Klein? It's written all over your underwear. Ah. And I'm so into those scenes. I think they're great comedic scenes. I think both of them are really strong characters. In the past, they're okay as parents, but they're, I don't know, the weird makeup kind of gets in the way. (laughs) The weird um, makeup and the voices, especially. There are so many bad accents in these movies in terms of like people play acting as older than they are, like for the sake of their characters in the future. I like (laughs) it. It's cartoony. (laughs) It is cartoony. Uh, I'll give you that. (laughs) But I really found that the stakes of that story felt real. The fact that he has messed up the fact that his parents will ever meet and has to make them fall back in love with all these obstacles. I think that really works well. And all the comedy around that is pretty funny, I think. So all the way that that was set up and then that plays out is good. It's just the time travel story around it and all the like zaniness and Doc Brownness like didn't work as much for me. Did you guys like Biff? So like I immediately saw Biff Tannen as Donald Trump as an analog for Donald (laughs) Trump. And the fact that the first scene with him is him having wrecked the McFly's family car and blaming George McFly for it was extremely apt, in my opinion. Yeah. What do you think you're doing? Biff. Hey, I'm talking to you, McFly, you Irish bug. Oh, hey, Biff. Hey, guys. How are you doing? You got my homework finished, McFly? Uh, 
Well, actually, I figured since it wasn't due till Monday. Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Hey, think with flying things. I gotta have time to recopy it. You realize what would happen if I hand in my homework and your handwriting? I'll get kicked out of school. You wouldn't want that to happen, would you? Would you? Well, now, of course not. No, I wouldn't no. want that to happen. What are you looking at, butthead? Yeah, I liked him in this movie. I think he works well as the villain in this movie. So I think we'll obviously have to talk about him more in <laughs> yeah. the sequels because he's in them. But for for this, it worked. As with the parents, I think he works a lot better in high school. I agree. I agree with His that. relationship with the parents in the present day, I guess, feels like cartoony and weird. Like a lot of that stuff does. It just doesn't ring true enough to me. But yeah, I mean, he worked. he's a very good like high school bully. He feels perfectly right in that space. Is Biff hot? Whoa. Is Biff hot? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I think Biff is hot. Like the actor in in the high school days of this movie, I think is hot. <laughs> Becky's into that Biff beef. <laughs> Do you have in your notes, is Biff hot? <laughs> yes. I wrote Biff is kind of hot? Question mark. <laughs> I have in my notes, is George McFly hot? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Chris, would you like George McFly to climb up in a tree outside your place to stare at you? Um, yes, why not? <laughs> is, so is George McFly hot? I'm going to go with no. Really? Oh, I I'm think Crispin was pretty cute at this point. Uh, you know what? Honestly, oh, I, I'm going but... to be the one to split the difference here. I think you're both correct. I think they are actually <laughs> both kind of cute in the younger iterations of them. <laughs> That's yeah, good, Crispin then. Glover is such a weird actor that I wouldn't have normally <laughs> thought of that. But then when I saw him in this one, he I just find like his performance too so endearing. He's so like yeah. nerdy it really and vulnerable. Is. It really is. He just felt the most like a real person to me, uh, just because he was, I guess, had a weakness, which <laughs> kind of no one else does. Uh, mm. He just felt like the most real person to me. I just really love the performances. Um, also, is Christopher Lloyd hot? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hard no. No, I actually really love that Doc, the character, still looks old in 1955. And in <laughs> 1985, he looks the same amount of old, even though 30 years have passed. I think that's true of Christopher Lloyd as well. <laughs> yeah. Something that I realized in this viewing, I never thought about like, why are they friends until very recently when I'm like, huh, why are they friends? <laughs> and I feel like it would have been very easy to put in like, oh, he's my science teacher. You know, he's the teacher at the school. You know, we bonded or something. He helped me with learn science. I don't know. Just some, he, they really could have thrown <laughs> anything, that in. Anything would have worked. Yeah. Or like he helped me repair my amp one day or something. I don't know. Or but... we cooked meth together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This movie really gives me Breaking Bad vibes with both the like sciencey and then like slacker relationship. And then he's wearing like the hazmat suit later yeah that's breaking bad to the future yeah (laughs) but the thing that i never thought about before was like if i was writing the screenplay of course i need marty to be friends of somebody old enough to still be an adult in 1955 so of course he has to be friends with somebody much older than him which i never really thought about to me, that seems like the clock tower thing where it's like you have to find a justification for another plot thing that you've already decided on. Yeah. Again, that's that's a mechanical solution to what should be a storytelling and character problem. Well, I mean, I also like their relationship, like a father and son relationship. And I think it's also interesting because he clearly doesn't respect his father, but he's very good friends with this other older man. I think that's <laughs> that kind of... that's. Yeah, I said just, something about their character, but you know, I wouldn't mind if they would have just thrown in a line somewhere. But I, but I do think that it's interesting to be like, oh, of course they needed that for the plot because he needs to go back and meet the person that invented the time machine, and that person has to be older. It can't be like even somebody ten years older; it has to be somebody way older. That's why it just feels so lazy that they didn't explain it because it would have been so easy to have him just be working, like he goes and like is an assistant, you know. Yeah, Sometimes, internship. And he's something getting like paid that. for it. Um, and it, it just would have justified it and made it less weird and actually would have made it a better mentor relationship if he's actually like paying him to do something. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. I don't mind it, but I can't disagree that a line thrown in. 
I want to give a shout out to the MVP, the most valuable pupper. Uh, Einstein, the dog, has a truly fantastic dog reaction in this movie when the DeLorean first comes out of the truck in the parking lot of JCPenney. Oh, I don't remember it. Yeah, I, I, in my opinion, this movie did not have nearly enough of Einstein and his <laughs> antics. <laughs> don't worry, the cart, the Saturday morning cartoon does. Oh, does it? Okay, I'm going to have to talks. check that out. What? I don't know if he talks, but he definitely like has more of a role. Oh, he talks because I saw that there was a voice credit for Einstein in the oh. cartoon. Well, that makes sense. It's a cartoon. Does it? You can talk. <laughs> okay. Just because it's a cartoon. You can do whatever you want in a cartoon. No, but really, it's so creepy that Marty McFly's mom wants to fuck him. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I really loved, actually, the kind of risque humor, which is, a. I mean, this is kind of a family comedy. For sure. It's a weird plot to have in a family comedy and one that you don't see very often. And I loved the dilemma and the fact that they were willing to take kind of the risk. Whereas if you read this on paper, I feel like you're like, ooh, that doesn't sound like it's good for a family movie. But I liked the edginess of it and thought it made a lot of sense. It was really funny because, you know, the mom earlier is saying, you know, how she's so proper. She never parked in a car with a boy. And then she's actually quite eager to mm -hmm. park with Marty later. So I thought it was funny in the sense that it reveals that like your parents may act one way and and kind of put some rules on on you as adults but when they were kids they were you know a lot like you and so I, I liked that sense and just like I feel like Michael J. Fox plays this really well too I don't know it's a funny dilemma as influential as this movie is I don't think that there's another movie that has this mm -hmm. kind of conflict in it so it's it's, it's really fun. And that was the emotional core of the movie, too, was that the stakes of, you know, that he won't exist if this happens, but also just like the emotional thing of how delicate it is that like every little thing has to go right for two people to sort of meet at the right time and fall in love and how like you could change one thing and that could set the whole thing in a whole different trajectory. That's my favorite part of this movie is just thinking about that and how each moment of our lives, it feels sometimes like things are meant to be, but if you just like changed one thing and didn't meet the person at this time or didn't make that decision, your whole life would be different. And I loved the implications of that. And Chris, that's, I'll definitely agree with you on that part. Like, and I, I think especially the plot device of the photo that Marty McFly carries around with him, I think works especially well. Like that is where kind of structuring the plot and those twists and turns of it in such a kind of overt way really does pay off. Yeah, I do wish that they had found a way to do that that wasn't, like, just body parts missing, because it's just yeah. like, oh, no, if my parents <laughs> don't meet, my brother won't have a head. <laughs> like, <laughs> I get what they're going for, obviously, but, like... I'm an only child, so that's how I figured it always worked. <laughs> so, Chris and Seth and I recently watched True Lies, and while we were watching it, the scene with Jamie Lee Curtis dancing happened, and it brought back a whole lot of emotions for me of being a little kid seeing a very sexual scene with Jamie Lee Curtis's cleavage being very prominent. And the same thing happened when I was watching this movie with Lorraine Baines McFly's prom dress or whatever, like the dress for the Chapman Under the Sea oh. dance, where I was like, oh, wow, this was a very, like the scene where she's in the car with Biff. <laughs> It's not that I was like getting off on a rape happening, but it was just, I was a little kid and something sexual was happening and it was just like, ooh. Well, yeah, I think the common thread here is boobs. Yes, <laughs> boobs. <laughs> because there's the scene where she's like leaning down a certain way and that's what yes. kind of like triggers Biff to nearly That did something for me when I was like 10 watching this. Wreck to the future. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the boob <laughs> So he's like full on raping her in that car. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's also very edgy. Yeah. There's Me very too. little in any of these movies that could be described as edgy, but that definitely makes the cut. Also, I think it's funny that. So in this timeline, he tries to rape her. George McFly punches him, you know, wins her over. And then 30 years in the future, he's like, why don't I hire the guy who tried to rape my wife back in high school? Because <laughs> he's like, they're like go boy in the future right yeah i always thought it was weird that biff was still kind of in the picture uh, yeah at that point. yeah george just really doesn't like eliminating people from his life i guess i know actually george becomes kind of biff like because he's like a jerk to biff in the future it's not like he becomes this like super nice guy he's kind of like an asshole to him 
I mean, my bigger problem is that Biff becomes George-like, and it's just completely out of character. It's like, one, no matter what, like, you do to Biff, like, he's not gonna suddenly be, like, Mr. Nice, you know? Like, that just kind of felt cartoony to me, and I wish yeah. that... Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's kind of my problem with these movies, and the ending of this one is just that it feels very, like, silly. Like, it, it's just not rooted in character that, like, that character would actually turn out that way. I think it was important that we see... Biff again, but that doesn't mean he had to be that kind of character. Like, he could have been dropping off the car and been like, oh, it looks like he has a really bad life. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being like, oh, sure, Mr. Mister McFly. Yeah, so I have a controversial opinion. Is I don't really like Doc Brown. Oh, I, don't, I feel like you wouldn't. I feel like you wouldn't because you didn't. Yeah, that's and I don't. Doc, she didn't even look at him. This is more serious than I thought. Apparently your mother is amorously infatuated with you instead of your father. Whoa, wait wait a minute. Doc, are you trying to tell me that my mother has got the hots for me? Precisely. Whoa, this is heavy. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? What? You you didn't like uh, Roger Rabbit. No, and I don't like zany, annoying characters. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then Adam's family, too. I realize that wow. seem like seem like very anti Christopher Lloyd, but like a lot of it is the lack of character development for him here. But like he's also just like caught saying exposition all the time. Well, he's a scientist. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't have anything to like do in this movie except for like plotty things. But honestly, I don't feel like that's unique to him. I feel like that's every single character in this movie. And like, that's more a mark of the writing than Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> yeah, I'm not necessarily complaining about his performance. I think he does a fine job. Like maybe John Lithgow could have grounded him a little bit more, but I think the character was written as zany. So it's really more of a Doc Brown problem than a Christopher Lloyd problem. But like once yeah. the parents get back together at the prom, like I'm pretty much checked out because all of the hijinks with the clock tower is just like, him being wacky and lightning striking various things and I basically stopped paying attention at that point because I was like oh whatever he's gonna get back I I never have found that Doc Brown has enough of a personality or like a grounding in reality to care about him well (laughs) (laughs) that's just like your opinion man (laughs) I can't argue with that but maybe you'll feel differently in some of these upcoming movies yeah I I have stuff to say about that did you guys recognize Billy Zane I always recognize Billy Zane He's in Biff's gang. Yeah. I I recognized him in, I think, one of the sequels because I saw that he was in them afterwards, but I didn't recognize him when I was watching this movie. Yeah, I first recognized him in Back to the Future 2, but yeah. I want to talk about Steven Spielberg, who is not the director of this movie, but a lot of people, I think, would say that he is. Uh, His name is the first one that appears in the credits. It's a Steven Spielberg's Presents joint. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that happens a lot. It does, but I feel like this movie also kind of cemented him as more than the director of things. He was coming off of Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., and then Temple of Doom. And yet, this was 85. It was the year that he actually did The Color Purple, which is very much the opposite of Back to the Mm -hmm. Future, and was kind of his first like really serious um, drama. And so I kind of like that this movie is the beginning of the era where he was really like, I think throughout a lot of our childhoods, like as much a producer as a director. I mean, he was behind The Goonies, American Tale, Roger Rabbit, Land Before Time, and yet didn't actually direct any of those movies. And so this just reminded me how much I think it was honestly confusing like what movies he actually directed and which ones he was producing. Cause I think you really do feel his stamp on this. There are certain touches and certain like push in shots or just like that sense of wonder that I think is in the best scenes of this, that I, I can't help but feel that he's kind of behind that more so. Than yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. And this is where he really became a brand and not just like a director. Mm-hmm. I mean, then it worked because usually when you say from the producer, of blah 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 you know it makes you think that this new movie is going to be like that movie and I think that holds true with a lot of Zemeckis's movies feel very similar to what Spielberg puts out so I think that's a really good collaboration because they have very similar mindsets I guess I'm giving Zemeckis a little bit more credit than you are (laughs) 
Yeah. And yet I am not because I feel like he was probably <laughs> most involved with this one. And then like with the sequels, it was kind of like, eh, you know, Zemeckis has got it. And I mean, I would imagine that we think this is the best of the movies, but I don't know. We'll talk about that in the next episode. No, we don't but know that. I feel like <laughs> this is the one where I actually feel any sort of Spielbergian touch, whereas I, I don't feel that in the sequels. Um, and I like it. I like it. I want to ask you guys if these things are problematic. <laughs> the answer is yes. Is this like an eye test? Yes. Are the Libyans problematic? The only thing about them that's problematic is the fact that they're called Libyans and they're definitely just a Hispanic dude hanging out of a van. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like if this movie were made today, I feel like it would have been like maybe the U.S. government coming for him versus terrorists from another country, because I think they would have been more careful to not offend anybody. Yeah, I had completely forgotten anything about terrorists or even Doc Brown being shot. I didn't remember that part. I don't know that there's anything problematic about it, like in theory, but the way that it plays doesn't work for me. It's just like goofy <laughs> mentioning true lies. It kind of feels like that kind of depiction of <laughs> yes. random, you know, Middle Eastern villains who don't actually feel like they're from a real place or have any personality beyond I want to shoot you. Yeah, well, and also it's like the the setup of that is that Doc Brown is stealing plutonium. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they all would have gotten mega cancer by that point if they were that <laughs> close to plutonium. Is this problematic? The fact that <laughs> a white teenage boy wrote Johnny Be Good in this <laughs> universe? Took, oh, most definitely. <laughs> took that away from an established black musician yes but like it's also <laughs> problematic just from a like what the fuck it's a throwaway joke but it's like he knows that song in the future so he doesn't need to like go back in time to inspire someone to write it like it just doesn't make any sense so beyond being kind of weird and racist it kind of throws off what this movie is about which is that like you go back and change things not you go back and inspire them to happen the exact same way that they did i did not enjoy that detail at all i i liked that joke a lot <laughs> Why? Because I thought it was funny. I actually really like it when other people parody that joke because I've seen it parodied a few different ways. What I find really problematic is the fact that that's clearly not Michael J. Fox singing. <laughs> 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 like, clearly not. And I was always really confused as a little kid because I was like, that doesn't sound like him. <laughs> I didn't understand ADR. <laughs> Clearly, they could have done a better job matching Michael J. Fox, like his voice. There's a lot of I, um, voice kind of things in this movie that don't work, I'll have to say. Yeah. All of these movies, I think, or at least the first two. What do you mean? I noticed like little lines or just voice work that didn't work, you know, with some of the parents and their makeup or just, oh. it didn't feel like a carefully made movie in that way, which I guess is ironic because it won the sound oscar mm. yeah like especially when they're doing their older characters their voices are just very dinner theater to me mm -hmm. so the end of this movie bothers me a lot like i i'm pretty okay <laughs> with with most of what happens I don't love the wish fulfillment thing because I think it would have been more interesting if instead of like changing his parents to be wealthier and like more attractive, like he had just come to appreciate them more. I think that would have been a better like emotional arc. It's just that he saw them more as like real people, but whatever. I mean, it's, it's not really that movie, but then there's this ending where Doc Brown, I mean, it sets up the sequel, even though I don't know that that's what they were going for at the time. It was just like... No, they didn't actually know there would be a sequel. So they were. it was just supposed to be a fun ending. Yeah, but it's just, it's this goofy ending that like, I don't really like any endings that set up like, the story continues because then tell me the rest of the story. Don't just end it. But like, Jennifer has no reaction to this. Like, Doc <laughs> Brown shows up in a DeLorean, like, crashes into some trash cans, tells them that they're going to the future and their children are fine, and she has no expression on her face. She's like, I mean, ah. I, I, I think, what's her, what's her face? Who's the actor? Elizabeth Shue is a better actress. 
Yeah. But it, I'm just like, who doesn't react to that? Like, it, it just <laughs> feels, again, like cartoony. And the whole ending feels very broad and cartoony. And I just wish there was, like, kind of a stronger ending to this that actually had some weight. See, I, I love it. I love it. I love thinking that even if there was no sequel, like, it's emulating adventures where the adventure continues, you know, like like Westerns. It's or- serialized, like the Star Wars movies ended yeah. up being. Like, I, I, I get that. Like, I get yeah. that. And I like that. And I love, you know, you're not expecting the car to fly. Like, it's just a very exciting, like, I would I would applaud if I saw this in a theater for the first time. I'd be so... I would boo. <laughs> no, I wouldn't boo. But I would be underwhelmed, as I was when I rewatched this movie. <laughs> just by that part. <laughs> Well, that was our discussion on the first Back to the Future. Please catch our next episode coming out soon where we discuss Back to the Future's part two and three. And we probably talk about a lot of other stuff. Maybe we'll bring up True Lies again. Who knows? (laughs) The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and suggest future episodes for the show. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm Chris. And I am your density. I mean, destiny.